Good morning and welcome to Legal Defense with Kirk and John. You've got Kirk this morning. You don't have John. Uh, he is right in the middle of a very uh, hot and heavy case that we're working on. So he is continuing his work on that while I join you for your morning coffee and conversation this Saturday morning. Hope you're having a great day. So the Brewers had their home opener earlier this week. I was lucky enough to be able to go. It was very exciting to be back in the ballpark and to see a, a great win over the Cardinals. Um, well, anyway, that's baseball. <laughs> Baseball's great. But I want to talk about a lot of the discussion that's been going on in various communities throughout the state about funding for the criminal process. And this has been something that continues to be a matter of controversy over the decades. And it seems to be something that never quite uh, gets resolved. Normally, the push for more funding comes from law enforcement, from district attorneys. And, and these are all legitimate um, requests that, you know, um, more resources need to be put into this process, there are counties that are don't have enough judges, don't have enough courts, don't have enough personnel to handle all of the influx of various charges that make their way into the system. And you know what I'm going to say, of course. I'm a defense lawyer, so um, I just want to point this out. There's nothing in the Constitution that provides for um, law enforcement to begin with, I mean, you don't see anything in there that talks about police. The word isn't there. I mean, we didn't have that word back when the Constitution and its initial Bill of Rights were written. Um, there was, of course, the concept that the government would have certain roles and functions as it relates to um, localized or state-oriented um, legislation, how that legislation would be created and a general idea about how it would be enforced through the government, of course. But it is very specifically part of our Constitution that we individual citizens have an absolute right to counsel, to defend against what the government may try to do to us. So I just want people to remember, this may be obvious, but every time there is a request for we need more funding, we need more equipment, we need more personnel in order to combat crime. Every dollar we spend in that direction really must be met with uh, an additional source of funding to make sure that our constitutional requirement that our citizens re receive uh, defense against charges that the government may levy against any of us. And this was an important concept, so important that it, were, it was actually built into the Sixth Amendment of the Constitution. Because, after all, we have a very high premium um, in having things built into our system that prevent the government from having too much power over us. And that's really the essence of it. So it's, that's why it's a guarantee. It's a constitutional guarantee. And over the years, uh, the role of counsel 
in relation to any sort of you know criminal or quasi-criminal proceeding has always been important, but it's been interesting how, how through many, many years, it's had uh, different uh, levels of emphasis on it. And the Constitution recognizes as a general philosophy that when the government has too much power over us, it is, you know, basically tyrannical and it it contributes to, and in some cases causes, a way of life that we do not want in our country. That is where, you know, individuals in the government have too much unchecked power. So this is really one of the most important things about our society is that um, we don't rest all of that function in one agency or one part of the government. It has to be balanced. And really, the Founding Fathers had this notion that by working it into the fabric of our society, that there has to be this balance. You've heard checks and balances before as an often cited principle that is part of our constitutional makeup. Um, that's what is supposed to keep our way of life um, intact, those those unique American values. So I know I talk about this a lot, but there's there continues to be a lot of talk about how funding is needed in various areas. And and I will say this. I agree um, that as we identify problems in society, a modern, progressive society will try to find ways to solve them. We should. Absolutely. It's not always pouring more money into the strength that the government has against the people. Sometimes it is, again, because we are, hopefully, a modern society that can have uh, multi-faceted approaches to various problems, uh, invest in an infrastructure that can address more than just catching bad guys or gals and throwing them in prison. It becomes a, a fiscal issue when most people that uh, are encouraging increasing funding don't see the bigger picture that we need to make sure that things remain um, on an even keel. Now, it's very interesting that we have this constitutional guarantee of the right to counsel, and we couple that with the fact that the funding that goes into making sure that people have counsel only really specifically covers people who are either completely indigent or very close to that. And if you've ever been through the unfortunate process of being accused of something and you don't have a rainy day fund set aside for when you might be charged with a crime, you may have gone through the experience or perhaps a loved one of figuring out if the public defender's office is able to represent somebody. Now, the criteria for that in Wisconsin and, and pretty much everywhere in our country, it's an extremely um, onerous threshold in the sense that we've created this gray zone. And the gray zone is between is a huge gap between people that are sufficiently wealthy that they have the funds to pay for a private attorney. And then there's the big gap all the way down to those that qualify for public defender services. Now, there is this middle ground. You've heard John and I talk about it 
many times on this show where the court can appoint somebody or more likely the public defender's office can appoint somebody to represent someone who qualifies. But again, there are financial limits on that. You know, the average uh, middle class working uh, family is not going to have the resources to hire a very good defense lawyer, and they're going to not be qualified for public defender representation. And that's a huge gap right in the middle. It actually encompasses most people. It's one of the things that bothers me the most about our system is that even though we have this guarantee, uh, it, it is something that is extremely difficult for people to come by. Um, your tax dollars, my tax dollars, when we say we want to increase, uh, you know, when there's a request for increase of funding, could include, you know, getting a tank for our sheriff's department, which, by the way, there is one. <laughs> there is a tank. Um, you know, the people, us people, we people, the people, don't get a chance to say, uh, I don't know if that's a good expenditure. We really need to make sure that the the public funding of defense is adequate. You know, you really don't, citizens don't get uh, a say in that other than who they elect to represent them. And of course, as you know, the, that, the way that trickles down and the way it comes down to how that um, ideal is properly protected, it gets very watered down and convoluted as it, as it goes through that process. So think about this, you know, our founding documents that make up who we are as citizens of this country, including the Sixth Amendment, you know, mandate mandate that there's this equivalency, if you will. And really, it's not even an equivalency. It's supposed to be that the default position of any situation like this is that there's a presumption of innocence. The government cannot incarcerate you or label you as a criminal unless and until uh, the case meets that very high level of proof beyond a reasonable doubt. So it, what it was envisioned is that you know, probably most cases that come before any court probably should not result in a conviction. Well, we'll continue the discussion when we come back right after these messages. So I want to address this notion that is a pretty common belief that if someone's found not guilty or acquitted uh, at a trial after that long process of charging, investigation, interviewing of witnesses, gathering of data you know, or whatever, from both sides, presenting it to a judge where the judge then decides what the rules are going to be, who gets to say what at the trial, making uh, limiting rulings or allowing one side or the other to do something they're asking to do in this tug of war where there's a person and, and oftentimes, you know, a victim of a crime that are in the middle of this tug of war getting pulled back and forth and then having it go to a trial where 12 citizens decide unanimously one way or the other on this. That whole process, when it results in a finding of not guilty, um, people sometimes will say, hey, you know, it was a loophole or that fancy defense lawyer did something tricky or whatever, or the jurors were dumb. You know, there's all kinds of it, it reasons that people come up with as though it's shocking. But you have to remember that 
our system is built in such a way that really uh, that should be the default expectation and it really is incumbent upon the state that's that's the government we're talking about when we say uh, protection against the government protection against the DA's office you know and the police that work on behalf of the DA's office or in federal court the US Attorney's office they're, they're responsible for finding uh, ferreting out crime and taking appropriate action on it as the legislature puts forth the structure for doing so. So, you know, it's big, it's like big shocking news when there's a finding of not guilty. And I can tell you over the course of my career, when, you know, it's happened hundreds and hundreds of times where there's a finding of not guilty, I'm always left with this feeling that why did they charge this person to begin with? I mean, why did they go down this path and put, put forth this tremendous and costly effort on something just because a suspicion turned into a hunch and then a hunch turned into, you know, we put it in all these categories with a lot of fancy legal words like, well, is there probable cause? Is it something that, you know, this witness can bolster that one or can we corroborate stuff and, you know, in all these different ways of this chess game that is uh, litigation in the in the courts. And if you think about it, part of it is because the advancements in technology that we have um, have not kept up with the desire to achieve convictions. And what I mean by that is that this whole notion of forensic science, and if you pay attention to these sorts of things, you should know that the term forensic isn't necessarily a good thing. I mean, you see that on TV and there's a lot of shows that purport, you know, they, they talk about the drama and how cool it is that they can use some sort of machine that figures out who the perpetrator is in some uh, glorious way that, that sheds light on everything and catches the elusive bad guy. Um, well, you know, the desire to have not only an orderly society, but one in which crime doesn't exist, which is sort of an unrealistic ideal, right, contributes to the creation of all these quasi-scientific methods. Um, uh, necessity is the mother of invention. You've heard that saying, and, and that often explains why over the years there have been all these you know, I want to say developments, but that suggests that they're accurate. But, but creative ways of, you know, manipulating scientific principles in such a way that it helps prosecutors bridge that gap. You know, remember, if the default position is someone's not guilty, they can't be proven guilty unless you go through all these processes by incorporating this so-called scientific stuff into the process. You know, the thought is that it helps the prosecution in those scenarios. And the problem is, over the years, we've discovered that, again, that desire for it to be valid has surpassed its actual validity. We now know that things like even fingerprint evidence, stuff that Sherlock Holmes thought was, you know, in the stories <laughs> by Arthur Conan Doyle, uh, it was portrayed as, you know, this 
amazing discovery that everybody has different fingerprints and so on. Well, you know, it's never been proven scientifically or even close to proven that that's a, a, a truism, that every person has different fingerprints. We don't even know that to be true. That, that there's no way that you could actually do that um, to make that impression. It comes from a work of fiction in the 1800s. I mean, that's where this notion comes from. Um, now, is are there times when that type of investigative resource can be valuable? Sure. But what we lack oftentimes is the ability for it to be put in its proper context and for it to be honestly and truly examined by the court system. Um, again, these are your tax dollars at work when they go to fund all of these programs, processes that are, are creating a quasi-scientific or science-like approach to something that, that doesn't meet you know, modern standards of scientific reliability, simply doesn't. But when those resources are spent, people hope that they are um, well put forth towards the uh, complete dissolution of all crime. Now, on that note, you know, it's, it's interesting that we often look at an ideal society as one where we all would live in harmony and everybody is a good neighbor and there's no reason for anyone to commit any kind of crime. Well, then you have to add the fact that there are substance abuse problems, people have emotional problems, and not even emotional problems, just like regular emotions that people have, regular problems, regular financial challenges, and, and life is hard for everybody. You know, that's part of why crime exists is because life is hard in a lot of different ways. And as long as we have guns, knives, chains, brass knuckles, stuff like that. And I'm not saying let's get rid of all that. I'm just saying that stuff exists because of the fact that we have an imperfect human race that, that interacts. We interact with each other in ways that oftentimes don't uh, work out very well. Sometimes people die and it's awful. But w we have put our justice system, if you want to call it that, on such a high uh, pedestal when it, as it relates to the interactions of our lives, depending upon it for something that is probably an unrealistic hope. The unrealistic hope that all crime will go away if we pour enough money and resources into the police department and the state that prosecutes these cases. That every time there is a crime, the public reaction is to be horrified and ask that something else, something new, something different be done, you know, again, in retrospect, because it's Monday morning quarterbacking, what can we do to make it so we don't have any crime? And let's use this one case as an example of a crime and let's make it uh, a priority that this person get convicted suffers the consequences, and so on. And what I'm getting at is that there has long been a, a slow evolution toward viewing the justice system as a means to fix things. And I mean fix things after the fact. 
you know, the crime's already occurred, so what do we do in order to uh, make everybody feel better that is except the defendant, you know, not the defendant. The defendant should suffer is the idea. And it's evolved to the point where we have these enhancements that are part of it. You know, uh, this Marcy's Law or Victims' Rights, which is now actually part of our Constitution as well in the state of Wisconsin, it has its good intentions. But what it really does is it creates higher expectations as to the precision of the justice system, the dis- the precision of our criminal process. That's really what it's done. It's created a higher expectation than is real. And by providing all of these services, providing all this support, providing all this emphasis on someone who is, you know, again, not the defendant, but someone who is identified by law as a quote-unquote victim, we set that entire process up for more disappointment. That's really all we're doing. All right, I'm going to take a break, and we'll be right back. You know, everyone in my office constantly uh, pokes fun at me because I, uh, in any given situation, I have some sort of analogy that goes back to the military. Happens every day. (laughs) <laughs> some issue will come up and I'd say, well, back in when I was in the military, this is how we did things. And I, I'm aware of that. I know it's kind of a silly thing about me, but it's it's true that there are so many things that we can learn from the way the military does things. I don't mean everything. Obviously, we've seen issues where, you know, there's abuse of command authority. We see where there's sexual misconduct and, you know, it tends to be highlighted when it occurs within that military context. Um, but, but part of that is because, you know, in, a, in, a, in the military, quote-unquote, society, things are really a microcosm of the, the bigger picture here. And yes, it's true that there are different standards than what we have in the civilian world, and military would military people would tell you that they are a higher standard. I don't know if that's really appropriate because it sounds demeaning to civilians, but... The point being that um, here's an interesting thing. If someone's accused of a crime in the military and they're being court-martialed, did you know that the federal government provides highly trained and experienced lawyers who are on active duty, whose job it is, is to defend against courts martial and all sorts of disciplinary action? So, so, so in that version of our, that microcosm of our bigger society, it's put at a premium, a very high premium, that somebody receive qualified, well-trained, and, you know, aggressive counsel against charges that the government, in that case, the, you know, a military authority, is bringing against a person. Now, why is it so important to do that in the military? One might think, well, you know, the military doesn't have to follow all of the constitutional rules. The military doesn't have to do things exactly the way civilian society does as far as protecting people's rights, theoretically. <clears throat> there are oftentimes things that come up in the law that you've heard military necessity. It's oftentimes, quote unquote, necessary to bypass what would otherwise be seen as due process or protections under the law in order to not interfere with an important military mission, you know, to fight a war or something like that. So despite all of that, despite the fact that that is a concept that exists in the law, it is imperative 
absolutely essential that if someone is accused of a crime under the Uniform Code of Military Justice, that they receive good, excellent, actually, representation. And there is so much effort and work that goes into making sure that happens, that no one is ever left behind. Now, that was my job in the Air Force. Well, first I was a prosecutor, but then I became uh, a defense lawyer. I was defense counsel for a pretty large area of the central western United States. And anybody that got in trouble uh, had me, as well as other resources that the defense has in the military, to, to defend them. And it doesn't come by simply having a law degree and saying, yeah, I'll do it. No, there is an, a very long, arduous training process. And this might surprise you, but if it does, I hope you hear this. Because what happens is, before an attorney, a JAG, in the military is entrusted to defend one of the, the soldiers or airmen or sailors that are being prosecuted in that system, they must go through a great deal of very arduous, very intense training. And they must um, prove that they are capable of doing so. It's a, it's a high hurdle to jump on purpose. They make it that way. They don't want this to be something where some flunky, well, first of all, if you're a JAG, you're not a flunky because it's, it's hard to get into that system to begin with. But the point is that if it's a, a process whereby the military didn't care about the rights of people being prosecuted within its own system, and if they said it's up to you to figure it out, uh, hey, go go hire your own lawyer. We're not, you know, we'll provide one to you if you're indigent, but you're not indigent because you're in the military, right? You know, this big gray zone that would exist. Now, I know that when I was defense counsel in the Air Force, the worst thing that one of my clients could do is to go out and hire a civilian lawyer to either assist in a court martial or to take over representation in the court martial. Now, in our area here in Sheboygan, we don't have any military bases, like active duty military bases in close proximity. But I can tell you, all over the country and even in, you know, over the world, where there's a U.S. military base, there are, it's surrounded by things like pawn shops, uh, you know, cash your check uh, for, you know, early for cash, uh, you know, uh, paid own TV shops, things like that, you know, things that are designed to kind of take advantage of people's proximity when they're stationed at a military base, a little bit predatory. Well, most of those military bases are also surrounded by law firms that say, hey, you know, don't trust your area defense counsel, hire me. Well, you take away that protection of all the training experience and, you know, hardening of an attorney that that makes it necessary for them to be part of that system so so let's back up a second why would that be why would it be that the federal government as part of its military structure would make sure that someone defending a person being court-martialed would ha would be have excellent qualifications experience dedication to that case i mean the defendant not not the, the the other, not the government. Why would we put so much effort into making sure 
that those people have good counsel. Because that's part of a reliable and trustworthy system. And it's one of the, what I've always found to be kind of a, a genius thing about um, military society, if you will. You always hear this concept of good order and discipline. Morale, good order and discipline. You got to throw the morale in there, right? Morale, it's important to have good morale. Now, what is part of good morale? Trusting that you will not be unfairly or inaccurately accused and convicted of something that will ruin your career, your life, your freedom, and perhaps more. Um, so in order to make sure that people have, number one, faith in the system, and number two, an incentive to follow the rules, we have to have, number three, belief that the system is fair. And that's what it really comes down to, is that if you don't have a perception that the process is fair, that the system is fair, people end up doing bad things out of desperation for other reasons. You know, almost as if when people will be losing hope in a desperate situation, waiting for a miracle to happen. Our system doesn't rely upon miracles happening. It simply doesn't. So, you know, again, people in my office will make fun of me for this again, because I'm doing it once again, but talking about the military and how things work is, I, I think it's useful, though. I know that we can't have our entire country operate with the same sort of rules. I know that. But one of the things that helps keep things um, better, <laughs> at least, is that we have that very strong balance uh, between two sides in that, in that military justice system. And it's just something that just doesn't exist in our civilian society. You know, it, it's left up to happenstance luck there's no there's literally no regulation when it comes to who one should be entrusted with and i and i don't know exactly what the founders had in mind i think i know i think they meant that you know let's guarantee the right to counsel because we want to have that balance of power it shouldn't be too you know there's also an argument that back then lawyers were of a, a higher sort of echelon in society and in the distinction that there should be this protection of of an industry as it were i don't believe that i mean that may have been part of it but i think that in order to actually put it into uh the bill of rights it has to be something that we regard as important and again part of the fabric of our society so where what can we do differently what we, I think we've almost created this problem that gets deeper and deeper and deeper every time we shift the balance ever increasingly towards uh, more funding and more resources and more everything that goes simply on the prosecution side of things. So I, I've got a couple ideas. They might be silly, but I'm going to talk about them when we come back right after these messages. Welcome back to our final segment uh, coming up on the hour pretty soon. My how time flies. All right, I told you I have some ideas. Now, these aren't realistic ideas, but let's just say um, anything could happen. Let's just 
talk about like, hey, if you found a golden ticket and you get, you know that you're going to get to go see Willy Wonka in that kind of fantasy world, what, what could we do? And I know this won't happen, but again, um, if it were built into the government process, the government funding, and there were an entire department of the government, and let's talk first on the federal level. And again, this might sound preposterous to some, but I think it's something that is worth thinking about as a long-term goal. You know, we have the U.S. Attorney's Office, right? The U.S. Attorney for each particular district, we have the Attorney General of the United States. They're responsible for enforcing the the criminal laws, uh, you know, as it relates to prosecuting people. You know, we have a lot of laws out there that are designed to protect a defendant in addition to those constitutional rights. So, quote-unquote, enforcing the laws is something that is a government function from both perspectives. Could be. Should be. So, you know where I'm going with this. If there were an equivalent department within the United States government that was responsible for defending citizens... Okay, so your first thought right now is, well, wait a minute, Doesn't, isn't that something where who would want to trust the government to defend against the government, right? <laughs> I get it, I understand, but just with my experience and how one either you know appointed or elected or however we would work that out is in that position has a responsibility to that particular department, let's say the Department of Citizen defense i don't know what you'd call it but to make sure that there's training experience standards standards for uh when someone can handle a criminal case someone could be a federal employee and receive all the federal benefits etc that prosecutors have and the same resources or access to resources that prosecutors have I understand the weakness in the argument, which is that if you're supposed to not trust the government, why would you trust the government? I get you. But I can tell you that just in my own experience, having been a uniformed Air Force officer and people came to me for help, very quickly it was established that they not only could trust me, but absolutely did and understood why, why that's important. What this would do is it would take away a lot of the uh, problems that we cite in in our system that we blame on inadequacies here and there. And frankly, our notion of what a defense lawyer is now, you know, they make shows. Better Call Saul, you've seen that, right? You know, there's this this sort of impression that it's a... And hey, it is. It's like a business model out there. In order to do this with the right amount of training, the right amount of compassion, the right amount of aggressiveness that the Constitution requires, it's up to somebody to go to law school, have those sorts of ideals uh, impressed upon them or learning from others, or that it's just something that drives you from the very beginning. And you decide, I'm going to personally... Take the, uh, you know, a private business approach to this to fill that gray zone in the middle. And then, you know, just see how it works randomly. And w- without any guarantees that someone has 
appropriate experience, training, temperament, resources, etc. And you know, it's I know it sounds like it would be a tremendous expenditure. Not really, because if that was done properly, a lot of the funding that goes towards the one-sided nature of how we do these things would be balanced out. Is it a crazy idea? Some might say so. But I think that if we really closely examine the problems that we have in our system, and it came down to a government agency that could and should have a responsibility to provide that particular service, a constitutionally guaranteed service, it could be something that would work out very well. Now, you might point out, hey, what about the Federal Defender's Office? Well, they also have standards of indigency, and it's also something that only applies in the federal system. So my next comment here, and I know that one, the main reason why this hasn't really happened or been thought of thoroughly before is because each individual state has its own um, freedom to construct their justice system in such a way that if it meets minimum constitutional requirements, in other words, if it meets the goals that are set forth in the uh, constitution to protect people, citizens, defendants in these situations, then they can do whatever they want surrounding the rest. And let's face it, 99% of criminal prosecutions happen at the state court level. It's very, very infrequent that we see prosecutions in the federal level. And that's by design. It's part of our um, the way that we have this division of jurisdictions. And from the very inception of our country, it was the federal government was more of a binding, uniting uh, entity rather than a supervisory entity that would tell the individual states what to do and how to do it. So we have these basic guarantees. And then from there, as long as those exist in each state's system, they can do whatever they want as it relates to the rest. So guaranteeing somebody the right to counsel and those words standing alone mean a lot of different things depending on interpretation. So I get it. I understand how and why there are difficulties and problems. But, you know, what we have done in our state court system has been something that really mirrors in some ways, not always, but in some ways, the federal system. We have, in our state, we elect judges. I get that. And in the federal system, they're appointed. I know, that's a separate issue. But we do have um, an attorney general, you know, a, a, somebody who's in charge of our local Department of Justice. We have a court structure that mirrors or, or is similar to how it works in the federal system with a trial court, an appellate court, and then a Supreme Court. We have a lot of um, the same or similar sorts of procedures that exist. There are variations, of course, but it's it's similar in the sense that it's doing the same thing. Now, if we, as a state or any state that wanted to do this, by the way, were able to create, you know, a new division of the government that would have oversight and, and responsibility for ensuring fairness in the process, I think that would be a very good thing. By the way, do you know what we do now? on that issue, ensuring fairness in the process? Well, yes, the judge is there to do that. And yes, a jury is there ultimately to decide facts of a case by listening and deciding. But 
the judge's role is limited to what the judge is told, right? If there's an issue, the judge has to decide on an evidentiary issue, but it's only based on what the two sides tell the judge. There's always tons of stuff in a case that the judge doesn't know or can't know, or it's impossible for the judge to know every little nuance of the case. So the judge isn't the thing that keeps it fair. I'll tell you what it is. There's a rule of ethics, and this is sort of a, in my mind, an ineffective, um, almost ludicrous way of handling this. So although a prosecutor is responsible for uh, amassing the evidence, um, oftentimes responsible for uh, guiding the case towards a conviction, the caveat to all of that is that a prosecutor must seek justice and not merely a conviction. So we point to that oftentimes as, hey, hey, oh, oh no, that, that balances things out because a prosecutor can't just be looking for a conviction. Well, 100% of prosecutors, including myself when I was one, will view this process as I believe the person's guilty, therefore I'm doing the right thing. And what, what's really happening is it is coming down to one person, the one person that has an opinion who, by the way, is biased because of the person's job. And it's not 12 people that will hear the evidence and decide if someone's guilty or not. It's one person, the prosecutor. And if it's, it's pretty easy for any prosecutor to tell him or herself that they believe the person's guilty because it's their job to. So that's the only protection, really, that stands in the way of, you know, this being an unbalanced, out-of-whack situation. All right, I have to go. It's the end of the hour, and we have to make room for our next show. But hope you've had um, a peaceful, joyful Saturday morning on this uh, holiday weekend. And you can tune in next week as you can every week right here on 1330 and 101.5. WHBL, this has been Legal Defense with Kirk and John. Have a great weekend.